Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Black Case Diaries. Hi. I did a, hey. little, I did a little William Shatner there for a second. Yeah. Huh. He did just turn 90. So. Oh, Ooh. happy birthday. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> we are three old friends learning everything we can about movies and TV and hopefully teaching everyone else in the process. Hey. I'm Adam. I'm Marcy. I'm Robin. Yeah. Yay. Happy Animation April, everyone. Last year, we packed this month with several historical episodes about the beautiful art form of animation. I think I'm so proud. I'm more proud of those episodes than like anything else. Yeah, they were awesome. Yeah. It it was so much. Yeah. (laughs) A lot went into it, guys. (laughs) If you haven't heard them, check them out. Please, Mm -hmm. please. This year, we're starting the month with something a little different. The Lion King, The Prince of Egypt, and Toy Story are all beloved animated classics that have stood the test of time. Nobody's going to doubt mm-hmm. that. No. Nope. But today, we won't be talking about any of them. Nope. Ooh. <laughs> Bam. Nope. Fooled ya. Bam. <laughs> <laughs> Every once in a while, a beautiful animated movie will hit theaters and do okay. They can have great stories, wonderful performances, and innovative design. But people just won't go see it. Yeah, it's unfortunate. It really is. Sometimes it's because the studio doesn't have enough name recognition. Other times it's because of marketing or because the movie looks strange and took risks. And people like the familiar. Why do you think Disney still makes princess movies? (laughs) I mean... (laughs) I don't know. Why? (laughs) Why, Adam? (laughs) Because it's familiar. (laughs) And it works. Yes. Because it's what people want, guys. Why are all the Marvel movies the same? Allow me to answer by directing you to my previous sentence. Yes. Yep. So today, we each picked a movie that we felt deserved a little more exposure. These are films we love that if you haven't seen, we recommend you give them a chance. Here are our animated hidden gems. Yay! So this is one of our special prompt episodes. Yeah. I mean, these are pretty rare. Yeah. They are I think we do lately. like two or three of these a year or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where we each pick a movie and we talk mm-hmm. about each one individually. Like, yeah. 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 So we each picked an animated gem. Yeah. We bring them to our round, well, <laughs> almost round table. <laughs> it is a round table. It's just the- One that... of the leaves is down. Yeah. 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 That's fine. So I'm going to go first. Are you ready for this? Heck yeah. My movie is Surf's Up from 2007. Oh, dude. What is it? (laughs) Uh, What is that? Surf's Up. We've never heard of that movie because it's an animated gem. Yeah. That's right. It's hidden amongst the diamonds. (laughs) So as a synopsis for this movie, surfing means everything to the teenage penguin Cody Maverick. Followed by a documentary film crew, he leaves his home in Shiverpool, Antarctica, for Pengu Island, the site of the Big Z Memorial Surf-Off. Cody wants to be respected and admired. He believes that only winning the competition will bring him that. However, an encounter with a washed-up surfer geek teaches Cody about what is truly important. Ah, so it's like the movie Cars, yeah. but with penguins. <laughs> you know what? It kind of is. <laughs> Sounds a little like Cars. I like Cars too, though. Uh, so and you like Cars? And cars I like too. Cars too, too. <laughs> <laughs> and three is pretty good. Yeah, I like it all. But this one is awesome, and if you've not seen it, like I said before, 
please go check it out. Mm-hmm. It'll be worth it, I promise. So, Surf's Up is a mockumentary comedy film directed by Ash Brannon and Chris Buck. Starting production in 2002, it was Sony Pictures Animation's second theatrical feature after the film Open Season. You guys mm. know about Open Season? I do. I saw that in theaters. Yeah. I heard about it. Saw trailers. Yeah, you probably know. Yeah. remember the bear yeah. and the deer with yeah. one antler. Ex- yeah. yeah, I think mm-hmm. the tagline was, uh, when the odd get even. <laughs> oh, that nice. was tagline. Right. I believe nice. it was in my Nickelodeon magazine. Ooh. <laughs> I just, uh, <sighs> yeah. Anyway, nice. that knowledge nice. there. <laughs> it is a parody of surfing documentaries such as The Endless Summer and Riding Giants. What a fun thing to parody. Because, yeah. like, when you're a kid, you don't really know that that's a thing to parody. <laughs> yeah. You don't, you don't find a seven year old watching lots of <laughs> surfing, surfing documentaries. Yeah. Yeah, and being where we live, surfing yeah. isn't really a thing. Surfing, no. there's no surfing here. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Rarely is it on TV. Yeah, but yeah. but as a cultural thing, no, you definitely yeah. have to be on the coast. Early on in production, one of the first things they did was take the entire crew and actors to a beach for surfing lessons. Aww, how sweet. fun does that sound? <laughs> I feel like I would Scary. struggle hard. <laughs> It was to get a sense of the character's lifestyle, as well as to take in the majesty of the ocean and waves. They were looking for a balance between the fun and flair of surfing with the danger and power of the ocean. This is on the behind the scenes of the DVD. They were all like, you know, they did one of those big group pictures. They were all in their uh, <laughs> swimsuits and stuff. And yeah, it's like, yeah. oh, we're going to surf. And then all of them are like, oh, it's so hard. It's, <laughs> you know, they did their little talking heads with each person. And it's just like, I um, I was on the board for like a second. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, was, I made it. It, it looks really, really hard. Yeah. <laughs> you have to have a lot of core muscles. Yeah. Oh, a lot of leg muscles. You have to be able to balance. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. I, I never even wanted to go like water skiing. If you could promise that I wouldn't wipe out horribly, <laughs> I'd try it. Then, yeah. So actually, the animators even designed a unique rig just for the waves in, in the animation yeah. so they could be properly realized. Uh-huh. When, you, when you take a look at their rig, it's like made up of a bunch of rings because mm-hmm. you know how waves curl over themselves. Yeah. yeah. So it, it, it's this really complicated rig that, <laughs> that uses like rings so they could animate the w- waves individually, almost creating... A wow. character out of the water itself. Ooh. It's it's pretty neat. That's awesome. For this movie, the directors wanted to nail the documentary feel. Most documentaries have someone with a camera trying to capture spontaneous moments, and it's often rough and jittery. Mm-hmm. To obtain the desired handheld organic feel, the film's animation team used an at-the-time groundbreaking motion capture technology that utilized a physical camera and the live operator's movements. It was a camera that filmed a digital environment through the viewfinder with another small camera on top that senses the outside room. Oh my gosh. This allows the camera operator to move around the virtual space while the digital images stay in place. So imagine if if anyone listening or if you guys have experienced VR mm-hmm. even a little bit yes you ca- yeah. you'll you'll kind of understand exactly what this is they built basically the entire set virtually and they would have the camera person stand in it 
and they would just hit play on the animation and say film it. They huh. knew they knew vaguely where things would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like, oh, you're doing a talking head in this shot, so you, your character's standing here, so, but then other things are happening around, so just be aware. Yeah. Oh. And there, there's one shot where they were talking to the lifeguard facing the water, and this little kid <laughs> who, who has a big crush on the lifeguard just <laughs> starts waddling into the water, pretending to drown so that mm-hmm. she'll save him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And the camera slowly just kind of pans over to him and kind of zooms in on the kid. <laughs> and 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 they were like, we love that. So they animated the lifeguard uh, girl kind of tilting into the camera like, um, it, okay, I'll step over here to stay in shot. <laughs> like she's like, um, yeah. what are you doing? Because she doesn't know what's going on behind her. And it's like this really yeah. organic feeling thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's this bounce back and forth from the camera to the animators. So it, it's like this... It it feels real. I remember yeah. noticing how odd, you know, it was in in the theater because I'd never seen anything like that before. Because mm-hmm. it did always feel like things were happening off camera. Yep. That you weren't seeing and you mm. were missing stuff, and it was just a very different feeling for a movie that's animated because obviously in animation everything is deliberate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So a, a, an animated movie where things can happen by accident is. It's, yeah, it's really. Yeah, different. It, it only happened in the credits when they animated the blue. Yes. Oh, <laughs> yes. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> right. And there's another scene that I wanted to bring up because they mentioned this one in the behind the scenes when they were talking about it. Mm-hmm. There's a scene towards the beginning where the recruiter comes to Shiverpool to to recruit Cody for this competition, but he needs to go like show him what he can do, right? And he runs in, grabs his board, and is like, "Hey, mom, come out and watch me surf. This is it," you know. And his mom is like, I don't want to. But instead of following him into the door, and they were going to do like three, they were going to do a couple cuts for this scene. But the camera guy was like, what about this window in the the igloo? He just held the camera up and zoomed in right through the window and caught the whole thing in one shot. It's like, look at the difference you make. Yeah. Just by having somebody who is used to doing that. Yeah. In another unusual move, the directors decided to have voice recording sessions done live in person with multiple actors together. Usually, voice acting is done in a small booth with one actor being fed lines to say in various ways. But for Surf's Up, they didn't want the dialogue to sound like it was planned or being read from a page. Like ours right now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Does this sound planned? (laughs) (laughs) This was crucial to creating the documentary This Is Happening Right In Front Of Us feel. Yeah, it definitely feels like that. Ash Brandon said in the the behind-the-scenes interview talking about creating real chemistry, We encouraged them to overlap each other and to just be themselves. People recognize real conversation. It just has a different sound to it than a scripted movie. Everything about the way you talk changes when you're talking face-to-face. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's Absolutely. 100% true. Yes, mm-hmm. because it, it's true. <laughs> because people are generally not screenwriters. Mm-hmm. So when they're yeah. having a regular conversation, they're going to say silly things. They're going <laughs> to have a hard time finding the right word. Mm-hmm. They're going to stutter. They're going to misspeak, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is, and then obviously in a scripted film, you don't want these mistakes written in unless it's a plot point, unless right. there's a reason for it. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Obviously, they sound different, and mm-hmm. one is going to sound much more natural. Right. Yeah. And 
in this way you get weird little things that you don't expect and the animators have to kind of work with that mm -hmm. and it creates some really interesting things like there are tiny little things that the animators just decide to add that mm -hmm. add just <laughs> a little bit more character like yeah in one shot oh he'll be patting somebody on the back as he says it rather than just standing there or something. and the animators were like well that feels right because it feels yeah. like a real thing that would happen in that conversation based on the way they said it you know yeah. being in person it just felt that way you had that real chemistry between the actors and they just build on it with the animation itself that is so cool yeah Shia LaBeouf also recalled being told that they were willing to do three hours of ad-libbing <laughs> for five seconds of screen time wow <laughs> <sighs> wow, that's like some Robin Williams that, kind of stuff. Yeah, that sounds like something that a director said, and the editor was like, what now? <laughs> <laughs> right? What What did you just say? Yep. <laughs> um, coming in? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, many of Cody's lines ended up being ad-libs. Wow. Especially his talking head moments. When he was talking directly <laughs> to the crew, those were all Shia LaBeouf. Yeah. Wow. like, you know. But another cool point that I do want to bring up is that real-life surfers Kelly Slater and Rob Macedo make appearances as their Penguin Surfer counterparts, along with Sal Masekela, the announcer for the X Games. You guys ever Ooh. watch the X Games? Uh, no. Nope. Well, if you did, you'd recognize his voice. <laughs> All right. Nice. <laughs> they were originally brought on as consultants for the film, but the directors got the idea to create an in-universe sports network to add to the feeling of authenticity. And they were the perfect voices for the job. Cool. Yeah. Heck yeah. Yeah. But speaking of the voice talent uh -huh. in this movie, right. there's some great ones. Oh, boy. I mentioned before Shia LaBeouf as Cody Maverick. Oh, yeah. He's known for Holes, Transformers, and Disturbia. It's so funny to me because Transformers and Disturbia came out pretty much at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> and so he was like so big for yes. just like two like, summers or so. Yeah. And my mom took me to see Transformers and Surf's Up because they both came out <laughs> in the same summer. Yeah, that's a killer double feature. Yeah. <laughs> Next, we have Jeff Bridges as Zeke or Big Z slash Geek. Ah, he goes by yes. a bunch of names. But he is also a very well-known actor from films like Tron Legacy, mm. right? That yeah. beautiful, yeah. wonderful film. <laughs> One we talked about before. Um, the Big Lebowski and True Grit. Ah, and some other ones. And he's in another animated gem that we're going to talk about yes, in just is. a few minutes. Ooh. Yeah, Get ready for that. Mm -hmm. Then we have Zoe Deschanel as Lonnie, the nice. lifeguard. Ah. She is in many things, such as 500 Days of Summer. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but may mostly be known more currently from New Girl. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Last week, we talked about how Aubrey Plaza's part in Parks and Rec was kind of written for her as a yeah. person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Zoe Deschanel has a lot of that kind of thing going on, too. Ah. Her parts just feel like herself. Yes. Next is John Heater as Chicken Joe. Nice. Okay. He's a fantastic uh, character. Yeah. Yeah. Who originally was only going to be in the beginning of the movie, but first like showing and yeah. you know, when they were talking about it, everyone loved him. So they're like, well, we'll write him in to be more. <laughs> yeah. This was a good time period for John Heater. Yes, it was. Mm -hmm. Most famous for playing Napoleon Dynamite, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, but he's also in Blades of Glory. And provided some voices for Monster House. Oh, another nice. animated gem that That's, we might yeah. talk about someday. That's right. Next is Mario Catone as Mikey. 
He's a little sandpiper bird who's Aww. like the uh, scout who goes around and finds all these surfers. Ah, how cute. Yes. He is an actor that is known mainly for his parts in Sex and the City, both the show and the movies. Wow. All right. A very recognizable yeah, voice. He's known for Sex and the City. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> Next is James Woods as Reggie Belafonte. Okay. The guy who is a total jerk in this movie, but he runs the surf competition. And ah. Winning is all that matters to this guy. That sounds like a James Woods role. Yeah, because he kind of he wants to sell everyone's like success. Yeah. yeah. And be like, oh, yeah. I created the success of this guy, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He is a famous voice um, we, that we all know from Hercules. Right. Obviously. Uh-huh. But he's also in things like Once Upon a Time in America from 1984 and the 2006 version of ER. Next is Diedrich Bader as Tank Evans. This is the rival Ooh. in the movie. A voice actor for numerous cartoons and games, and he was also in Office Space and Napoleon Dynamite, along with John. Crossover there. Yeah. Yeah. Next is Kelly Slater as the Penguin version of himself, and since these are these next couple are sports people, I'll be talking about their accomplishments in sports. So he is known for an unprecedented eleven World Surfing Championship wins and is widely regarded as one of the greatest professional surfers of all time. Damn. Dang. Which is crazy that yeah. he's in this movie. Oh my gosh, <laughs> yeah. Next is Rob Mikado as the penguin version of himself as well. Mikado has won the Hawaii's Pipeline Masters, which is called the Triple Crown of Surfing. Wow. So you get an idea of how big Jeez. deal that is. And the U.S. Open of Surfing, the largest surfing event held in the U.S. mainland. Wow. So these are some pretty good surfers. Yeah. Yeah. And I I wanted to mention that they were actually also at the crew and actors little surf time (laughs) and were like skating circles around them. Oh, my gosh. That would make me so self-conscious. Yeah. Being there with somebody who, like, knows (laughs) what they're doing. Yeah. But he also hosts and participates in the annual event held at his home reef (laughs) called the Rob Mikado Surf Classic and Beach Fair, which is an amateur competition for the locals of all ages. How cute. So so he totally helped out because he's, like, into helping people learn to surf. Aw. He's like, I love it, and I want you to as well. Yeah. Next is Salema Mabena Masakela as himself, the sports announcer on TV. So you don't nice. see his character, but you oh, hear his voice. Uh-huh. He is an American television host, sports commentator, actor, and singer. He was also the voice of the X Games for 13 years, including the time that this movie came out. All right. So wow. around 2007, if you watched the X Games, mm-hmm. which includes surfing, you would recognize the voice. Next, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the music in this movie because I think it's Ah. fabulous. Surf's Up, original ocean picture score, (laughs) was composed for the film by Michael Dana. He also did the recent Onward with his brother Jeff Dana, as well as The New Addams Family and The Good Dinosaur. The soundtrack for this film is made up of many popular rock, punk rock, and alternative rock bands from all over North America and the UK. Cool. Some examples are Green Day, Pearl Jam, Incubus, and Sugar Ray, <laughs> which, <laughs> which are some pretty yeah. hot music yeah. from the 2000s. Yes, yeah. yeah. 
According to the film's end credits, the version of Wipeout heard in the film is actually performed by the queers. The official soundtrack includes this version under the pseudonym Big Nose. For marketing purposes, it is to this day the only song under that name. (laughs) So if you look up Big Nose on Spotify, you're going to get this song. Wow. Wipeout, and that's it. Okay. Ah, All right. Now I know what to search. There it is. So the film was released on June 8th, 2007, and received generally positive reviews from critics with praise for the animation and humor. However, the film didn't break any sales records, grossing $149 million against a budget of $100 million. But it was nominated at the 80th Academy Awards for Best Animated Feature. Nice. Losing to Ratatouille. Yeah. yeah. Ratatouille's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. And a straight-to-DVD sequel was made in 2017 called <laughs> Surf's Up 2 Wave Mania. Uh, as a cameo tie-in with the WWE. <laughs> wow. In 2017. Tier 10 years later. Yep. Wow. Yep. What, what a weird what, yeah. choice. That seems yeah. kind of random. Yeah. Very. John Heater and Diedrich Bader were the only two to reprise their roles oh. for this. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. we, we don't talk about this one. Oh, okay. Yeah. This is not a hidden gem? No. Oh, all right. <laughs> Just stick with the first one. Why is this movie a hidden gem? everybody it's one of my favorite animated movies ever i love it so much i bought the dvd as soon as i could and i've watched it many a time Mm. between then and now i love the idea of filming animation live that just doesn't make sense it doesn't that's really cool Yeah. yeah And they did all this stuff. They made the camera like slightly grainy at times. Ah. They they had the crew speak a little bit once in a while, which were actually the two directors doing the voices <laughs> oh, cool. of the crew. People would look at the camera. Yeah. But that kind of stuff I love very much. It's, yeah. The camera itself is another character in this movie. With so many CGI animated feature films starring cute animals pouring in year after year, it can be tough to sort through all of them and figure out which ones are worth looking at. Surf's Up belongs in the pile with the good ones. That's what I say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this mockumentary film has a unique humor to it that spins the same old underdog storyline into something fresh that everyone can enjoy. It is one of Surf's Up's most admirable traits. There's enough for the adults without too much material going over the kids' heads, and there's plenty of physical humor that kids will enjoy. Lots of nice little slapstick stuff. The mockumentary style provides a fresh perspective, and there's also plenty of good values that one would expect from an animated movie focused on a sport. Never give up, winning isn't everything, and the value of friendship. Yeah. Those are all important. We love them. Yes. Additionally, the animation is strong. The most interesting is the way the animation is meant to reflect real life as if it were being shot like a live-action documentary, as I've said. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's very cool in terms of filmmaking, not just a mere concept. It's unique, sweet, and fun to watch. This movie keeps the plot simple, but shows it in a new and very interesting way. Nice. Yeah. Definitely, please, give Surf's Up a shot. If you like some of Sony Pictures Animation's later stuff, there was that one with the storks. Yeah. They've got some good ones, and definitely... Definitely surfs up as one of those. Yeah. This is a great movie. I think that 
there is a big pile of CGI movies and and you're you know you go to the movies you go to see a Disney animated movie mm-hmm. yeah. and all the trailers are for things like Norm of the North. <laughs> I remember Peter Rabbit. Yeah, you know, like yes. live action, but it, hey, yeah, it's just like you see all these things. Uh, there's lots of farts in them. You see lots yep. of you know what yep. I mean. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and I think that like people see that and all the children in the theater are giggling and yeah. laughing and having yeah. a good time, carrying on. But the adults are like, that is not something I want Please. <laughs> to to go to go see. Yeah. And like it's like I'm not sure I want my kids to see it because I don't want my kids to just do, be doing fart noises. It, people can be leery, you know. They're like, I'm not really sure. If it's Disney, they trust it and they go. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but there are so many good movies that are not Disney. Yeah. And this yep. is one of them. Yep. We did do another episode back in the day about some non-Disney animated Traditionally movies. animated. Yeah, yeah, in that yeah. case, yes. That's why we didn't talk about Surf's Up. Right, it would have yeah. been number one. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been up there, at least me, on my list. Me and yeah. Marcy both just looked at him like, would it, would it have would been? It have been? <laughs> I mean, Top five, maybe. We're just kidding. I no. can't think of other ones right now. Our, our lists would be completely different. Let's yeah. Be yeah. Okay, I guess it's my turn. Oh, boy. Sometimes a hidden gem can garner a cult following but still somehow avoid the radar of mainstream audiences. I'm saying this because the movie I'm about to talk about does have fans. Yeah. Oh, yes. The film I chose is certainly popular in some circles and is still regarded as one of the best and lasting animated films of the 1980s. But I personally know a lot of people who haven't seen it and some who are unwilling to give it a chance. So I am bringing it up today in the hopes that at least one person listening has not seen it and will seek it out with an open mind. Yeah. I have not seen it, but um, I've my mind is already wide open. <laughs> <laughs> we all know Rankin and Bass as the team that brought Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Frosty the Snowman to life. We talked about them, right? Yeah. Sure did. Yeah, we, we did. did. But in the fall of 1982, they produced a full-length feature film that was worlds away from their Happy Holiday specials. What? Oh, yeah. man. It was based on a popular novel by Peter S. Beagle and starred Mia Farrow as the titular character, a unicorn who has just discovered that she may be the last of her kind. But I believe the unicorn can save the world. (laughs) (laughs) The Last Unicorn is a heartfelt and imaginative story. It is weird, dark, and wonderful. It entertained and horrified an entire generation of children, and it aged well with them, as it contains messages that only adults will likely understand. Mm-hmm. I found so many reviews and stuff of, of people who watched it as kids and were terrified of it, or, or yeah. were, were even just unimpressed with it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then watched it as an adult and was like, dude, Whoa. this shit's heavy. <laughs> <laughs> and like, you need to watch it as a grown-up, they said, because you there are so many things in this that only adults will really truly understand. Yeah. Because part of the journey of the unicorn is that she learns these things that only humans know. Mm-hmm. But really, it's like human adults uh-huh. <laughs> are, are the yeah. ones that know these things. So I'm going to give you a little rundown of the plot of this movie, yeah. in case yeah, you yeah. guys have not seen yeah. it. And I'm going to be as spoiler-free as possible. Wow. All right. From a riddle-speaking butterfly, a unicorn learns that she is the last of her kind. All of the others have been herded away by a terrifying force known as the Red Bull. Oh, no. Mm. Yeah. The unicorn sets out to find others like her. 
She is eventually joined on her quest by Schmendrick, a hapless magician, and Molly Grew, a middle-aged woman. Their journey leads them to the castle of the tragic King Haggard, a man who has never known happiness. In order to shield the unicorn from the Red Bull, Schmendrick transforms her into a human. The three of them stay at Haggard's castle as they try to find where the rest of the unicorns have gone and how to save them. They don't have much time because the unicorn becomes more and more human each day as she falls in love with the king's son. If she forgets her true form, all hope of saving the unicorns may be gone forever. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Dark. So I want to talk a little bit about the production of this movie. It's a great story, though, right? Yeah. 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 I'm in. It's, a, it's got a hook. Oh, yeah, for sure. Peter S. Beagle is one of the world's most celebrated fantasy authors. In 1968, he published The Last Unicorn, a book listed in Time Magazine's 100 Best Fantasy Books of All Time in October of 2020. Dang. Yeah. Mm. The list was curated by a panel of authors, including Neil Gaiman and George R.R. R. Martin. Wow. Wow, that is cool. Yeah. Oh, Prestigious. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of really prestigious authors that put the, yeah. made this list and put this book on it. I saw one copy of this book I found. The cover said, if you haven't read this book, you have to read it. If you have read this book, you have to read it again. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yep. Great review. Bam. Beagle himself never really imagined the story becoming a film, but it was so popular that filmmakers started approaching early on. Beagle knew he would be devastated if another writer touched and changed his work, so he insisted on writing the screenplay if this were to ever happen. Now, we all know that just because someone is a good writer doesn't mean that they are a good screenwriter. Correct. Oops. Yep. <laughs> but because Beagle had written the screenplay for the 1978 animated Lord of the Rings, the studio allowed him to write The Last Unicorn as well. Well, I'll awesome. be darned. Which we'll have to. We should do an episode on all those animated uh, Lord of the Rings things. Yeah, we should. Yeah, like Hobbit. And... Animated movies that you didn't know existed because there's another live action movie that's more popular. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The case of. Beagle has said that he didn't have any input other than his screenplay, but that the film stayed remarkably close to what he had written. That's good, wow. at least. Yeah. yeah. According to Beagle, Lee Mendelson and Bill Melendez, the creators of the Charlie Brown specials, were interested in making the film. But one of the partner's wives pulled Beagle aside and reportedly said, don't let us do it. We aren't good enough. Oh, my oh, goodness. Wow. <laughs> wow. I mean, we talked about it in our Charlie Brown episode, mm -hmm. how they, like, slammed it together in a week yes. kind of thing. Like, they, yeah. they yeah. did you imagine this movie being done in that way? Just, yeah. Just, like, hastily made? Right. Mm -hmm. that, that's the funny thing about that quote to me is that... <laughs> I don't think they're not, it's not that they're not good enough. I think yeah. the style just wouldn't work. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. The style that they do. Beagle didn't know what possessed her to do that, but Mendelssohn and Melendez ended up not taking the job. Producer Michael Chase Walker bought the rights to the book from Beagle and optioned it to different animation studios. Finally, Rankin Bass's offer was the one they went with, which concerned Beagle. Yeah, it's not the it's not the first one you think of. No, yeah, certainly know. not. I mean, sure, he thought of a few others before that. Yeah, like mm -hmm. Disney, Disney, yeah. <laughs> perhaps <laughs> for sure. <laughs> like I said before, these were the Rudolph guys, so you can forgive Beagle for being a little apprehensive as they tackled this epic fantasy film. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> right. 
This is a quote from him, from, from Beagle. I do remember being horrified when he told me that Rankin and Bass had made the deal with him and screaming, why the hell didn't you just go to Hanna-Barbera? <laughs> <laughs> to which he replied, they were the next on the list. So that was going to be it. Oh, wow. man. You see, I don't... <laughs> thinking about it, I don't know if Hanna-Barbera would be... Right. Right either. Yeah. Their style is so different. Yes. Yeah. I think that Rankin and Bass ended up being the perfect place for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm, yep. I'm glad. As we mentioned in our Ranking and Bass episode... the studio always outsourced their animation to japan with great success the last unicorn was no different as rankin and bass acted as directors and employed the japanese studio topcraft to bring the movie to life under the production management of masaki izuka a few years later topcraft folded and was bought by legendary animator hayao miyazaki along with asao takahata and toshio suzuki they built the studio into the magnificent powerhouse that is Studio Ghibli. What yeah, the wow. hell? <laughs> that is awesome. Wow. Yeah. How cool is that? <laughs> I gotta go see this. So, I'm gonna talk a little bit about who's in this movie, and then we're gonna have a little talk about why this movie is so damn good. Yeah. Yeah. So when Rankin and Bass set out to cast the film, the animators were able to secure every voice actor they wanted. No one turned down a part, which meant the film had a stellar cast. Boom. (laughs) It's amazing to me because it's so obvious how much everybody wanted this movie to happen. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, like they they loved this book. They loved this story. I mean, you said it was in the top 100 just last year. Yeah. Yeah. Fantasy books of all time. Yeah. Yeah. Legendary screen and stage actress Mia Farrow plays the unicorn slash Lady Amalthea. She's known for many things, including Rosemary's Baby, A Midsummer Night's Sex Comedy, and Alice. Jeff Bridges plays Prince Lear. Hey, hey. Hey. There he is again. Yeah, lending his voice to things. Love him. (laughs) After hearing that a friend of his was cast in the film, Bridges called Jules Bass and asked for a role, offering to work for free. Bass hired him immediately to play Prince Lear. Wow. Wow, dude. Damn. Yeah. Imagine any actor coming to you and being like, I want to be in it for free. Like, I just want in. Please let me be in your movie. That's incredible. Yeah. I believe he got paid, but yeah. Well, yeah. (laughs) Alan Arkin plays Schmendrick the Magician. Peter Beagle has praised the performances of the actors in the film, all except for Arkin. He thought his version of Schmendrick was a little flat. Arkin brought an everyman quality to the character, though, as he wasn't meant to really steal the show. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. I, it's interesting. It's an interesting uh, comment, because I watched this the other day, and I thought, I can see what he means. The character is a little flat, but... That's kind of what he's supposed to be. Yeah. I, I, right. That's what I thought anyway. He's more, you know, an every dude, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> even yeah. though he's a magician. Mm-hmm. He helps carry the story, but like not. Yeah. Know. He's not supposed to be this standout character that blows you away. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's supposed to be just kind of like keeping the group together. Tammy Grimes plays Molly Grew. While Beagle was critical of Arkin, he seemed impressed with Tammy Grimes' version of Molly Grew. He said in an interview that Grimes brought something to the character that he himself didn't add. I think that's really interesting and really great because 
Marcy watched this, and you said you were confused by Molly a little I bit. I was, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I was confused because when they first introduced her, she seemed very like, ah, I don't believe in magic. Yeah. I'm yeah. just a part of this group. Got this group <laughs> mentality. Mm-hmm. And then they find her later, and she sees the unicorn, and it's like... Yeah. Her whole world was opened and she was much more open and you yeah. like her more and yeah. it it was very confusing yeah. the shift. I think that and this was something that I was reading in an interview that in the book and in the movie he very deliberately leaves out her backstory mm. and they don't really explain like who she is and it's kind of you can interpret it that she has lived a very hard life mm-hmm. but at some point in time was this innocent sweet girl. And then when the unicorn appears, she's pissed. Like she's mad at it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she's like, dude, now you come? You didn't come to me when I need like when I was a sweet young girl and I believed in you and yeah. I I had a good life. You wait until I've had this terrible life. Mm-hmm. And now you're showing up and proving to me that magic exists. And I think that the actress really did add a lot of that you know, that's yeah. stuff that wasn't there, you know, that we bring things up for interpretation. Yeah. It, it makes me think of that song, There Ain't No Rest for the Wicked. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of her attitude on it. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And then she really does lighten up mm-hmm. a lot. And she's a great part of the movie. She's cool. a great addition. Oh, yeah. I'm just going to come with you guys. Yeah. Very <laughs> helpful. Yeah. She's like, oh, yeah, I cook. I do all this other stuff. Yeah. Might as well show, help it. you out. Yeah. yeah. Christopher Lee plays King Haggard. Lee was a huge fan of the book and brought his own annotated copy to his recording sessions. Nice. Yeah. When he saw Beagle, he asked for his approval of his vocal performance and offered to do it again if it was unsatisfactory. Wow. That's crazy. This is a knighted (laughs) British actor. (laughs) Yeah. A very prestigious, well-known stage actor. And he is so into this story, just so excited to be there. And what he would do is he marked parts of the book and he came in and said, this needs to be in my speech. This line needs to be in my speech. I need to, I need wow. to have this part here because this part's so important to the character. And like he brought all that kind of stuff in there. Wow. That's cool, Dedication, man. Yeah. Man. Lee was also fluent in German and loved playing King Haggard so much he recorded the lines for for a German version of the film as well. Oh, nice, sweet. man. Yes, and this w- film was very popular in Germany. Oh, I bet. Nice. It's like mixed into that lore. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it was very popular there. Angela Lansbury plays Mommy Fortuna, nice. which is awesome. Yeah. She is not in the movie for very long, but you love hearing, you love hearing yeah. Angela's voice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, and she plays this wicked woman that captures animals mm-hmm. and mistreats them oh, and no. just not not great and uh, i also wanted to point out that she is in other rankin and bass things yes. and much sweeter yeah <laughs> yeah she's in the one of those rankin and bass uh, specials that we talked about mm-hmm. back in december where she plays a nun yeah <laughs> very different oh, role. Yes. Yeah. robert klein plays the butterfly in this movie nice. renee aubergenois plays the talking skull in oh, this, yikes. and nice. he is actually the person that was friends with Jeff Bridges. Oh, cool. uh-huh. And Rankin and Bass regulars Paul Fries and Keenan Wynn played various voices as well. 
Yeah. Yeah. Those guys had to be in there. Yep. yep. Gotta throw them in. Gotta be. It gotta be in there. So the music for the film, the, the music was written by songwriter and composer Jimmy Webb. Mm. He's had many popular songs for artists like Donna Summer, Art Garfunkel, and Glenn Campbell. The songs for the movie were performed by the actors and the folk rock band America. Hey. Yeah, and I, I believe a few different artists have actually covered the title song for this movie. Oh. I know wow. Kenny Loggins has covered it. Yeah. And it's a very popular song in Germany again. Very, very right. The modern sound of the music mixed with the medieval imagery adds a timeless element to the film. It's never specified when the story takes place, and there are modern references throughout. So let's talk about how this film was received. Despite the film's cult following, producers had a difficult time finding a distribution company. Eventually, the now-defunct Jensen Farley Pictures released the film on less than 700 screens across the country. Oh, man. Wow. It was rated G, despite scary imagery that would plague children's nightmares for years to come. (laughs) (laughs) According to IMDb, the film's budget was $3,500,000 and made $6,455,330. These numbers might be misleading. Fans of the film and internet sleuths claim that reporting on box office numbers stopped after 17 days. What? That's weird. Yeah. This would mean that theaters continued to show the film, but didn't report their earnings. And if it's true, it would mean that the actual amount earned will likely never be known. It was believed that this was because Jensen Farley reported bankruptcy while distributing the film. But according to court documents, this happened later. Wow, that's weird. I went deep. Guys, you got to go deep sometimes when you're researching these movies. Yeah. I went on message boards and all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. And if you just look at these numbers for a second, $3 million? That is not a big budget. Yeah. Yeah, That is not a big budget at all. Coins. Yeah. So, and then making $6 million, yeah, you made the money back, but- yeah. Uh, I mean, that's still not a lot of money. Not much. Yeah. yeah. Beagle had a lengthy legal battle oh, about the rights to his stories and the money from there was there was this huge campaign because people found out that he didn't receive any money from DVD or VHS sales. Oh. Wow. So there were a lot of a lot of dis- disputes about money around this movie. Yeah. Crazy. And the fact that they couldn't fund a distributor is such a problem. Mm-hmm. The same thing happened to the Brave Little Toaster. You know, there was no distributor for the movie, and because of that, that's why yes. it, it wasn't as popular as it should have been. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although the film made money, it wasn't considered a huge success. Some sources claim that the producers didn't see profits from the film. Peter S. Beagle has said that he thought the film was better than expected, and he loves the animation. Oh, good. Hey, that's good. Hey. Yeah. yeah. The film received favorable reviews. Janet Maslin of the New York Times said, The Last Unicorn is an unusual children's film in many respects, the chief one being that it is unusually good. This animated fable also features a cast that would do any live-action film proud, a visual style noticeably different from that of other children's fare, and a story filled with genuine sweetness and mystery. Wow. It's a great review. That That is is really nice. Thinking about it and hearing this, I'm like, Looking at myself like, what the heck, man? (laughs) 
I should yeah, have seen Adam, this by on. now. I it's, love animation so much. Yeah, that's the thing that's crazy to me, though. It's not anybody's fault that they haven't seen it. No. Mm-hmm. It is just because of the level of exposure that the movie just hasn't had. Yeah. And, like, if you talk to somebody who's a super fan of the movie, they're, like, you know, they're constantly raving about it, blown away by it, how great it is. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, how how has this existed for so long and how have I existed for so long without seeing it? Like, it's crazy. Yeah. The Last Unicorn is a wonderful movie that showcases the best that 1980s animation had to offer. It's not Disney or Don Bluth, and it had an uphill battle all through its creation. It's a movie that most of us have heard about, but maybe only saw once as a kid or never at all. At times, the story seems like a standard hero's quest for children. And then it throws the audience a curveball. One moment, you think you're watching a cute film about a unicorn. The next, you're watching the comic relief almost get smothered by the breasts of a love-struck tree. Oh, boy. (laughs) This movie's weird, though. I did say it was weird. weird. That's probably the weirdest scene. Yeah, it's an 80s movie. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of expected. Yeah, that's in the book, too. The film has sharp edges and presents truths that will have the adult audience nodding its head in agreement. We watch as an immortal, magnificent creature must seek help from humble, fragile humans. And in time, she's burdened by the lessons of humanity, like love and regret. Oh, man. I think everybody, at least everybody who likes this movie, I think there's like a moment when you're watching it where you go, wow, I'm watching something that's really good. Oh, man. I'm very curious as to what that moment is. (laughs) No, I mean, I think it's different for everybody. Well, yeah. Two years ago, when we were doing our top 10 non-Disney animated films episode, people suggested this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we have our podcast friend, Moxie, Mm -hmm. who is absolutely obsessed with this movie as well. Yes. Yeah. And and again, it is weird. I'm just saying that because, you know, I remember I like the Black Cauldron. Some people do not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so this has a little bit of a Black Cauldron feel too. Where is it? It's on Amazon Prime right now. Perfect. Yes. Yeah. That's available to watch on Prime. And or you know get the DVD too yeah. or the Blu-ray, yeah. Truth. Go so for it. That is my submission as an a hidden animated gem. Lovely, fantastic. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. Okay, so mine. Here the we name. Go. <laughs> the name is going to be the most recognizable. Everybody's going to know the name, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but. The movie, not so much. Got it. Got <laughs> okay. It. Also, Marcy and I independently both chose movies from 1982. Yes. Without talking to each other. No, we just, just happened. We both decided on our movies and was like, oh, they're both Obviously a great year for animation. Not, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not even Secret of Nim in came the out 80s. 82. Yeah. It was the exact same year. Yeah. Son of a gun. Yeah. yeah. Insane. Dude, golden year. Yeah, exactly. So my movie is The Wizard of Oz from 1982. All right. I'll be. Yeah. (laughs) So Dorothy is left to tend the farm alone as her Auntie M and Uncle Henry go off to run some errands. When a tornado comes, she frantically tries to get herself and her dog Toto into the cellar. When Toto runs from her because he gets scared, Dorothy gets knocked out as she's thrown to the floor of the cabin. When she wakes up, it is in the land of Oz, where she meets many characters and tries to find her way home to Kansas. You know, the basic plot of The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Though this movie is very different than the story that you might know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yes, just looking at it, it's it's a, it's a bit different. It's kind of weird as well. It's an- another 1980s movie. Is it, it has its quirks. Is it Return to Oz weird? No. <laughs> no, not quite there. Nothing no. is Return to Oz weird. <laughs> You're right. All right, so we're going to start with a little production here. This little gem was based, of course, on L. Frank Baum's Wizard of Oz, and it was directed by Fumiko Takayama. Hmm. The screenplay was written by Yoshimitsu Bano and Akira Miyazaki. And it was produced, guys, by Bano and Katsumi Ueno for Toho Company Limited. Toho! Toho! Toho, guys! Heck yeah! Yes, we That's know Toho. Awesome. Is there a Godzilla you know reference or please tell me no. there is. <laughs> not that i know of i didn't pick any out there's some oh uh, crazy beasts you're gonna things, have to watch it i have see. to see yes oh my gosh if godzilla's in the back there might for be a second, you know <laughs> i would be so happy or any of the kaiju right any of them yeah. <laughs> top craft animation also helped with this one a little hey! bit they cooperated. Son of so, a gun. 1982, man. They were working on uh, Marcy animation. and I basically picked the same movie. I know. <laughs> Bam. <laughs> <laughs> so this one was different because although this movie was animated in Japan, it was not dubbed for Japanese release until 1986. Four years later. Dude. Dang. English came first. Wild. Yeah. The music was done by Joe Hisashi and Yukiro Oda. Joe would later go on to write music for many of the Studio Ghibli movies like Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind and Castle in the Sky, nice. among many others, I believe. Yeah. Brilliant. I'm loving all these Ghibli vibes. So many. There were three songs in this one, and the English lyrics were written by Sammy Kahn and Alan Burns. The three songs were all performed in English by Eileen Quinn and are It's Strictly Up to You, I Dream of Home, and A Wizard of a Day. Oh, yeah. So Robin started watching just kind of to remind herself of this movie. She turned it on <laughs> and immediately you're hit by the first song, the, yeah. the, the music. And she turns to me and she's like, this is so 70s Yeah, It was literally, I I think I might have been three seconds into the movie. I paused it immediately. I said, this sounds like the late 70s. Yeah. Wow. Like, that is the sound that I'm hearing right now. (laughs) But I loved it. That's what I remembered as a a kid, you know? It's so weird how that can happen. And not, even if you didn't live in the 70s or any time, you still get, like, placed there. Yeah. Somehow. Yeah. It's it's this weird like detached nostalgia that you somehow have or like secondhand nostalgia. Yeah. It's really weird, but it's super cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, that's pretty cool. It is. So everyone, of course, knows Dorothy as this lovely young girl portrayed by the brown haired and pigtailed Judy Garland in the 1939 live action. Yeah. And it's really hard for most to see her any other way. It really is. You know? uh, it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like that is the iconic image of Dorothy. Yeah. Even even when we watched Return to Oz, just for a moment, I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Not her. <laughs> <laughs> but L. Frank Baum himself did not give her specific physical descriptors in the first book. Instead, he says things like how she was an orphan, innocent, and a harmless little girl. 
In this animated version, however, she has blonde hair tied up into a single ponytail with a simple red ribbon. Yeah. Interesting. So it's just very different. Yeah, and probably easier to animate than a pigtail. Um, That's a good I point. Bet. Yeah. 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 It doesn't really move much. It's like she sprayed hairspray. <laughs> <laughs> and if she's looking forward, it's behind her, so they don't have to do it at all. Yes. Oh, yeah. Nice. True. Nice. <laughs> And overall, this movie is much more similar to the original book than the 1939 version. But the one key difference that they kept was the red slippers. Uh-huh. Of course. Yeah. They don't really say that they're ruby. They can't. They're, just, they're, they're just not red. allowed. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. They cannot say they're ruby slippers. Yes. That copyright is madness. Yeah. <laughs> A wasteland of uncertainty and yes. awfulness. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> One of the closer similarities to the book was that the first witch Dorothy stumbles upon is the Good Witch of the North, and she is not Glinda. Glinda, just like the book, is the Good Witch of the South, yeah. which she appears uh, later. Yeah. Does she happen to arrive by bubble? Nope. No. Uh, no, she just kind of appears by the house. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. When Dorothy gets mm-hmm. up, they're all waiting for her. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and wow. Yeah. She's depicted as this older woman with like gray hair, and she's got a crazy hat it's like yeah. a, it's kind of like a witch hat i guess you know it's got the point but it's got these little dangles on it yeah she is a very uh friendly grandma feel yeah nice the second similarity would be that each of the characters is shown a different version of the great and powerful wizard of oz nice whoa that's cool yeah dorothy's shown a gigantic green head the scarecrow's shown a beautiful angel Tin Man sees him as a scary rhino, <laughs> which in the book it's said to be a great beast, not necessarily a rhino. Yeah. But yeah. Um, and then finally, the lion sees the wizard as a great big ball of fire. That is, that's really cool. Yeah. Actually. I love this because the Wizard of Oz is too weird and too wide. To yeah. be in a movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so like the the nineteen thirty-nine version is just it doesn't do it, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It scratches the surface of the yep. of Oz. It's a beautiful movie, an absolute classic. Yes. Which we definitely need to talk about at some yes. point. Oh yeah. But in terms of this fantasy, this mm-hmm. dark, strange fantasy, yeah. this really in-depth, <laughs> detailed world, yeah. you know, of course that movie doesn't cover all of that. Mm-hmm. So it's it's cool that there are different versions that have the different... It's happened before, but this is one of the moments where I'm reading this and I I think, dang, I maybe I should read the books. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. like you said, the movie's not even touching it, and the movie mm-hmm. is already great, so the yeah. book... Is just adding on top of this. Yeah. Like that's really that's a really cool thing to do. The wizard appears differently to everybody. That's yeah. That's one thing different and yeah. it's already really cool. The final similarity that I'm gonna mention is the appearance of the Kalidas. Kalidas are this vicious large creature that appears within Oz. Ah. Interesting. Neat. Yeah. Yeah. Scary. Yeah. Spooky. It, it adds a little something that the lion can, you know, be afraid Actually of. Actually be or, afraid or, of. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the voices. So the American version came first. Mm-hmm. And that's who we know. So we're going to talk a little bit about each of the people that, that voice these characters. And Eileen Quinn is the first one. And she was Dorothy. 
We also know her as Annie in the 1982 Annie. Yay! This year had so much. <laughs> Lorne Green was the wizard. He's known for Bonanza, Battlestar Galactica, and the movie Earthquake. All right. All righty. Billy Van was the scarecrow. He's in things like the hilarious house of Frightenstein and Law and Order. Okay. All right. Yeah. A lot of people love that. If you are an American actor and you've not appeared in Law and Order, <laughs> yeah. you haven't made it. Yeah. You have, you yeah. have not made it. John Stalker was the Tin Man. He's done things like the Super Mario Brothers Super Show <laughs> and a couple of the Care Bear movies. Ah, Dude, that yeah. is great. <laughs> care a lot. We care a lot. <laughs> Thick Wilson was the Cowardly Lion. He's done voices for the animated ALF series, and he was also in Tommy Boy and The Dark Crystal. Ah. Sweet. Those are some good ones. Elizabeth Hanna, who played the Good Witch of the North, Jaliah Jam, and the Wicked Witch of the West. Nice. She's done voices for many different things, including Babar, Little Bear, and Care Bears. Oh, so oh she's a voice gosh. of our childhood I as well. I watched all of those things. Yeah. I feel like oh. we're going to have to do a thing on her. Wendy Thatcher played Glinda, the Good Witch of the South. She's known for Mythic Warriors, Guardians of the Legend, Threshold, and Highballin. Cool. Yeah. Nice. So now there were Japanese voices for when they dubbed it later. We'll provide those on our blog so you can go check that out. Yeah. And uh, so this this movie, you know, not a lot of people know about it. So why why do I think it's a hidden gem? Well. Mm. It's it's not well known, I don't think. And to be honest, there was not a lot of information floating around about it either. Not a lot. Yeah. You know, of extra yeah. tidbits that we could talk about. But it's it's beautiful that this movie is able to follow the story of the book just a bit closer and show us some of those lovely animations. I think what's most charming about it is that they're able to show that each of the characters Dorothy meets essentially already has what they're asking the wizard for. Yeah. The Tin Man becomes sad over killing a bug, which shows that he cares and has a heart. Uh. The Lion distracts the vicious Calida, showing he has courage. And finally, the Scarecrow makes plans and has good ideas, like cutting a tree to create a bridge, which demonstrates that he can think. Yeah. It's, it's great. It's just like in the other... In the live action movie, by the end, you're like, well, they had it all along. Yes. It's yeah. The whole thing. So, yeah. The wizard didn't really do anything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But in this case, it's like, show it instead yeah. of telling. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is a charming version of the Wizard of Oz and a hidden gem that you just might want to check out. Yeah. I think I do. Yeah. yeah. And it's available for free on YouTube. Yes. This is a movie I did watch as a kid. I didn't remember a whole lot about it, but I, you know, rewatching it, it's like kind of a. It's almost like, oh God, I didn't dream yeah. this movie. It like, comes it back actually to you. exists. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I, I like it. I was rewatching it. Yeah. It is very sweet, very mm -hmm. easy to watch. Mm -hmm. It's got good pacing. A lot of older animated things we feel like might be a little slow at times. Yeah. Right. But this but... does not feel that way. I like it a lot. Awesome. So there it is, everyone. The best thing about animation is that there is so much of it. Some of it might be a little rough, but some of it is spectacular. For each movie, like The Lion King, there's a beautiful hidden gem that deserves a little love. So don't be afraid to go see the animated movies that you haven't heard as much about. 
Worst case scenario, it will be an adventure. The best case scenario, you will find a movie that you might end up loving for years to come. So give these films a watch if you haven't already and tell us what you think. Do you have any hidden gems that you would like us to watch or talk about? Let us know. Yay! Yeah. Yes, please let us know. Please. Yes, that would be great. And this is talk our about. first Animation April case closed. Woo! Ooh, perfect. Yes. Beautiful. Good yes. start to the month, eh? Yeah! Yeah. So, Animation! That's right. Woo. It's a bomb time. So enjoy. Yeah. If you would like we would appreciate it if you go follow us on uh, our social medias maybe check out our patreon you can find all of this lovely stuff including the blog with lots of cool extra bits about yes. what we talked about on blackcasediaries.com yeah and go check out our other show also no small parts also can be found at blackcasediaries.com slash no small parts yes, yes sure can their episode five will be coming out this month. That's right. Narrated by Adam. Me. Yay. Woo. That'd be a good time. It'll yes. be fun. And before we go, we'd like to thank our patrons as always. Joel, John, Jacob, Jacqueline, JD, Anthony, Shelley, and Linda. Yay. Yay. Thank you. You guys are great. You really Rock. are. Thank we you We appreciate so much. you very much. So thank you, everybody listening. We appreciate you as well. See you next week. Bye. Bye.